This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your hosts, Chris Spear and Andrew Wilkinson. Each week, we'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook and Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 24 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. On this week's episode, we have Chef Matt Finarelli. Matt is an in-home culinary instructor and personal chef in the Washington, D.C. area. He has also published a cookbook called Beyond the Red Sauce. In this episode, we discuss some of Matt's most popular classes, marketing, Yelp, and the pros and cons of Thumbtack, his spice company, Ani Spices, cocktails, and so much more. And we'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Jug Bridge Brewery, located at 911 East Patrick Street in Frederick, Maryland. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. All right, welcome back. We're here with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm Andrew. And this is Chris. And today we have with us Matt Finarelli. Thank you for coming out. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Go ahead and tell the people kind of who you are and what you're about. Well, my name is Chef Matt Finarelli. I am a D.C. area culinary instructor. Uh, So my chef without restaurants style is that I teach cooking classes in people's homes. I uh, bring all the food, all the equipment, and we make a fun night out of having a cooking class in people's homes with on pretty much whatever topic they'd like to learn about. I mean, I do some personal chefing, some catering, those things, but my focus is uh, primarily on cooking classes. Do you have like a niche that are, are like go to for maybe somebody that first hits you up and they don't really know what they want? Is right. Is there like a specific type of cuisine that you like to teach people about? Without question, uh, being Italian, Finarelli, that's you know, a good Irish name. Yeah. <laughs> being Italian, uh, Italian is my focus. Um, people love to learn about the different regions of Italy, and I have classes based on regions of Italy as compared to also all of Italy as well, sort of a grab bag if you'd like. Um, but my second best cuisine is Thai. Uh, I learned some a lot of cooking when I was in Thailand, and I really feel that Thai food opened up my abilities as a chef. I and mean, I like to always cook food with an eye towards being a Thai chef. That's mm-hmm. not to say using Thai ingredients and everything, but I look at Thai food as uh, cooking with contrast. Thai food is all about the contrasts, about the you know the the earthy with the grassy, the the spicy with the cooling, the soft with the crunchy, and I cook everything with an eye towards that. It was Thai food that sort of opened me up as a chef. So even at, when I cook Italian, I feel like I cook Italian with an eye towards Thai. Yeah. But that being said, I also cook really good Thai. So when people come to me like, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm like, well, I do Italian, but if you like Asian, I really do Thai well as well. And I try to steer people in those two directions because they're the most fun for me. And I feel like they're a great showcase of my abilities. So I know they're going to come out with a good class either way when they go those routes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you, do you teach pasta? I feel like pasta oh. making is like a big First of all, it's fun, mm-hmm. and it's something that people can kind of like, like once you teach them, then they can try it on their own, and then Absolutely. have that forever, kind of. I, I, it's exactly what you're saying. I, I definitely teach pasta. It was uh, when I was teaching at the uh, Sur La Table down in Pentagon Row in Arlington. Uh, that was one of my most popular classes. They kept you know having me do that one over and over, which is fine. Uh, I love doing it. What I love about teaching pasta is when the person comes up to the pasta machine with their very first ball of pasta and they're slowly cranking and trying to get their hands just right to get that sheet out and it's you know this big slow mess by the third one they're cranking away you know, 100 miles an hour like they're all pre- i mean i always make the joke like once you have like two or three pasta machines in the room and everyone's just cranking full i'm like yeah i got my pasta sweat house uh just working you know this this uh, factory is just churning right along it's amazing how fast you can pick up pasta and to watch their confidence level grow that quickly and churning out tons of great homemade pasta. It's always a fun class for me. So do you teach pasta hand rolling type stuff where you wouldn't have to have like a crank or anything? Have you taught any pastas where it's all done, you know, kind of rolling pin well, or small little things like that? I teach primarily with the machine. Um, the the hand rolling, of course, it can be done, but I show them I have an old pasta pin, like my grandmother's pasta pin, and I show them how that's done sometimes if they're interested. But the machine is there 
for a reason. I mean, that machine was created for the reason of making good pasta at home and making it fast and easy. Uh, the Italian word for it is la macchina, uh, the machine. And the other thing that Italians call la macchina is the car. Okay, so it gives you an idea of the level of importance of a pasta machine in an Italian household. It's equal to your car. So I think that I tell people, like, get a machine and, you know, hand, a good hand crank machine, 120 millimeter width, it ran you like 75 bucks. Uh, and the one that I use was my high school graduation present. And I'm 43 now. I just had my 25th anniversary and that machine is still cranking out quality pasta to this day. If you take care of it, It'll last you forever. So it's a great $75 investment and you'll be churning out great homemade pasta. Facebook Marketplace has tons of them. I bought one for $10 and it's like a super (laughs) nice expensive one because I feel like it's another one of those food trends where people go and buy one and then they make it once and they don't do it again. And you can go and get some really good deals. And I got this woman down. She was asking $20 for both a hand crank pasta roller and a ravioli thing yeah, the and like, she, she hadn't moved it in months so she's like ten dollars porch pickup come get it so i picked Perfect. that up i did a pasta workshop with jen lewis and she has the book i think it's called pasta by hand but mm-hmm. one of the things one of the pastas was she literally dipped hands in water and then just like shook them over semolina flour and let it sit for like three or four minutes and then put it in a sieve and get off the extra put it to the side and do it again she said you know that's at so the cool. very basic level, you can make really quick, easy pastas. And that's a very rustic style. So her book is dedicated to all these very rustic hand pastas of Italy, not using machines, not doing crazy rollings. It sounds like a, sounds like a cross between a couscous and uh, almost a spetzler that, kind of thing. That's so that's almost, that thing, that, yeah. that's almost how it came out. Cool. That's a neat one. I never heard of that one. What was your career direction before, before food? Okay. So before I was a chef, I actually... Went to uh, real college, if you will. I majored in environmental science and public policy and uh, ended up at World Wildlife Fund. Uh, I worked there for eight years. Uh, so I was doing the office life, uh, having fun there, you know, working within my major. That was fantastic uh, world to live in. But the siren song of uh, being a chef was calling to me. And it, it was weird. I, I ended up taking a class with Fairfax County uh, in Virginia. Fairfax County Adult Education. Uh, I took a home electrician's class. And at the end of the class, they said, hey, uh, can you teach any classes? You know, they wondered how the class went. Can you teach any? I said, yeah, you know, I don't even know why I did this to this day. I don't know why I wrote this down. But I said, yeah, I could teach Italian cooking. I mean, I had no training, but I'd been cooking Italian food all my life. And I said, okay, you know, for the level of this, I could teach that. They called me the very next day. And they're like, the guy who teaches our Italian classes, he's opening a restaurant. Right. We need someone to do the uh, Northern Italian class that's coming up. Can you do that? I said, yeah, OK, sure. Why not? You know, OK, let's give it a shot. So I started I put together a curriculum. I put together a menu. Uh, I had to do all the work and they paid me something like fifty dollars a class to teach all these people. And I had to do all the shopping and I had to get everything together. And it was the most fun part of my day. I was loving this. And it was all this extra work for nothing. And I was like, after I'd done it a while, I was like, someone is trying to tell me something. You know, there's there's a message here. So I started going to culinary school at night. So I was going to night school, two years there, top of my class. And that was going really well. And I said, you know what? That's it. I quit my entire career and started out in restaurants at the bottom and then just started working my way up, doing the restaurant thing. Because I figured that's what chefs do. You know, chefs only worked in restaurants. Uh, so it was, you know, climbing and climbing through through the restaurants. And the last place I worked at, they wanted to do cooking classes as part of their thing. They wanted to close on Mondays and Tuesdays because, you know, the days when there's no uh, work, they said, let's have a cooking school here. And I got back into the teaching. I was like, man, it was the teaching, you know, because that's how I started was by teaching. The teaching's the part that I love so much. So I quit my entire restaurant career and I started this business. I said, let's, let's do a business where I teach cooking classes. And I'd run the numbers with a friend of mine and we both concluded it was impossible. I could never make any money doing this. But I was like, forget it. I love this. Let's give it a shot and see what happens. Well, that took off in ways that I never expected. And now uh, this is what I do full time. It's uh, I have I have the gift of gab. I am an extrovert. I don't belong sort of hidden back in kitchens. I belong out in front of people and working with people and talking with people. And that's why this style is so much better for me. Uh, it, It really is enjoyable. And I like being my own boss, too. How many years have you been doing the cooking class? The cooking, uh, this business about 10 years now. It's it. it uh, I was hitting my goals 
really early on. I couldn't believe how much this took off. I, I say that this job is a real surprise to me that it works because my entire business is predicated on the concept of inviting a stranger into your house with knives. <laughs> and yet it works. People yeah. still call me and they're like, yeah, I don't know you. You've never seen my kitchen. And I come in with a toolbox with like 17 knives in it. I'm like, hi, good to meet you. <laughs> and they're like, make yourself at home. And I, I think that it's uh, it's amazing how welcoming people are, how open they are to a new idea and a new uh, experience. And I'm always blown away by just how many new people find me and want to experience this in their house with a total stranger. And yet we always end up having a great time. So how are people finding you? Mostly, okay, so back to the World Wildlife Fund thing. At World Wildlife Fund, I was their webmaster for five years, and I was their online marketing guy for two years. Of the eight years I was there, I was doing this for seven years. So in my early days of my business, I was really good at getting myself well-positioned on the internet because that that's what I'd been doing for seven years before. So I found some really cool ways to sneak myself at the top of certain lists and the, uh, the business started really popping from there. Now that I'm well-established, uh, a lot of word of mouth these days. You know, people will have a class and one person will hire me. They'll bring in five or six of their friends. We'll have the class. And then one of those friends will be like, hey, you know, I'm doing a thing. I'm like, here's my card. And then now I'm at their place. And they bring five or six of their friends over. And now we have a thing. And one of their friends is like, you know, I could, you know, no problem. Here's a card. And so it's that leapfrogging method is also a big way that my business has grown. So yeah, I'm positioned well on search engines. Uh, you know, you can find me if you're doing the right searches and, you know, you can find me on Yelp and things like that. But the word of mouth and just, you know, people experiencing it and then deciding, hey, this was fun at this person's house. I'd like to have you do the same thing at my house. That's been a big growth factor for me as well. Do you still have to pay for marketing? Do you do paid Facebook ads or anything like that? My marketing budget is zero dollars. Wow. Impressive. I'm just dead zero now. I, I, I There was a time when, yeah, I would spend on... Uh, you know, putting ads in this place and Facebook ads and so forth. But uh, I mean, much to Yelp's chagrin, because uh, they do call me frequently, uh, my marketing budget zero. And Same. You know, it, it's, it's a fantastic uh, moment when they you can see the, the person's reading like, so how much are you spending on marketing? I'm like, nothing. You can hear them flipping through the script like, what do we do? And they say zero. <laughs> yes. have, you ever, have you ever had to use Thumbtack or a platform like that where people go out and look? Because I, I do use Thumbtack. Okay, so I've used that because yeah. I see people all the time looking for cooking lessons on there. Yes, uh, Thumbtack is Thumbtack has been good for me, uh, and I have gotten some very good gigs and clients off of it. But it's not a it's not a huge vector for me because uh, a lot of people are trying that lowball thing on Thumbtack, like you know how cheap can I get you for? And you know you see what range they're looking at paying, and some of them it's it's too low and it's not worth it. Another thing is a lot of the cooking classes they're looking to just teach one person, and my model is that I charge a per person rate, but I have a four person minimum charge. So whereas I will teach one person, you're paying for four anyway. So that serves two purposes. One, it makes it enough money to be worth my time. But the other benefit of that is that in a way I automatically get four people in that class. I want more people, enough people to be there that I can do that leapfrogging thing I was talking about. So yeah, I, so I oftentimes I have to write to people on a platform like Thumbtack. They're looking for one person. I'll be like, look, you know, we can do this. But if you just invite some friends over, if everyone pays their own way, it's not that big a deal and everyone can afford this. And that I meet with about 50-50. Some people just want a private class. I'm like, well, it's, it's pricey because you're paying for four. And then other people are like, it's a great idea. I never thought of inviting my friends over. And boom, that one works really well. And unfortunately, it's also a somewhat expensive platform to use as well. You know, I've looked at those things where a cost might be $30 oh, to get a lead. And you talk to that person over the course of a week or two, and then they decide not to go with you. And you've lost your $30. So I have kind of a love-hate relationship with them. Yes. You know, it, it was good, I think, uh, for me six or seven years ago mm -hmm. to build some business. But like you said, once you start getting the clients, it's just kind of a referral funnel through your old network. Uh, You're exactly right. And the cooking classes are cheaper on Thumbtack, which is nice. But I would say probably on Thumbtack, if you count that as marketing, then my marketing budget's maybe about 100 bucks a year, 150 So it's here, not a lot. here's something interesting that I found. Cooking lessons are cheaper than dinners, but people are willing to pay more for a lesson than a straight dinner, even, even though I say all my dinners are as interactive as you want. Right. So if someone wants a dinner for four, they'll say their budget's $75 and I'll say, but you can come hang out in the kitchen with me and I'll teach you how to cook. That's too high for them. 
but they'll come on and they'll say, I want a cooking lesson for four. And I'll say, cool, but we're going to make it a five course dinner that you're going to eat. And they're okay with that. Yep. So it's really the same event, but when it comes under a cooking lesson, people are willing to pay more and it costs me less, which I just find peculiar. It's, I, that was the part of the business that I never understood. When I said I was going through the numbers with a friend of mine to figure out, could this possibly work? I didn't factor in how much people were willing to pay for cooking lessons. They really feel like there's a, you know, a meal's a meal, but they, they put value on the fact that you're teaching at the same time. And so people are willing to pay a lot more than I thought they would. And that's why the business works. I was, I was blown away that they were, they put that premium on it. I figured that people wouldn't put a premium on the fact that yes, I've been to school. Yes. I know how to do these things. Yes. I'm happy to share that knowledge with you. And people do put a premium on that. And, you know, much to my happiness because, you know, that's how I'm going to send my daughter to college. So it, you know, I'm glad that they do that. Uh, but that's exactly something that I found. And I was totally surprised because I ran the numbers based on what people were willing to pay for dinners. I didn't realize classes uh, meant I could charge more. And, and rightfully so, because I mean, I'm doing sort of two things at once. And people always say like, wait a minute, how do you, how do you chop and talk and monitor what's on the stove at the same time? You know, so nothing's burning and everything is coming out. And, and yet you're watching us and making sure we don't cut ourselves and all that. I'm like, it's you know not my first rodeo. <laughs> it's a learned skill, but yeah, it's always that the time in restaurants that I did was invaluable. That that ability to multitask and always be focused on seventeen things at the same time. If I didn't have that experience, I never would have been as successful as a culinary instructor as I am now. Because you know those skills, everything that you learn, you will eventually use again. Um, and also, it's good for you know if something goes wrong in the kitchen during a cooking class. I know how to quickly adapt it and make something else happen. I mean, because that happens. I mean, I, I was teaching a class once and the dessert completely failed. I'm actually not even sure what they did uh, or what I did. I, I, I don't even know whose fault it was. It just, it didn't work. And so I quickly went into their fridge. And I'm like, here, let's put something else together. Let's, let's quickly throw something else together and let's make a dessert so you guys have something. Uh, and, you know, if I didn't have the ability to stay cool under pressure and improvise and so forth that I learned in restaurants, I never would have been able to pull that off. How much do people want to actually cook? Because I find when people say they want a cooking lesson, they really just want to stand in the kitchen and drink a glass of wine mm -hmm. and ask you a bunch of questions and maybe do some work. Yeah. But nobody wants to cut an onion. <laughs> in my experience, what I get, nobody wants to cut an onion. They don't want to do that stuff. They just kind of want to talk to you about what you're doing and watch huh? and drink. So kind of it's, how's that? What's that look like for you? I would say that's a good question. I put this on my website when I... I, I, you know, I got a lot of questions and I put together a section called uh, how it all works. And one of the things I say is like, if you want a hands-on class, we can do a hands-on class. If you want a demo class where you sit back, drink wine, and I cook for you, we can do that too. If you want a hybrid of the two where you, you come up, I show you how to cut an onion, and then one or two people want to also try that out and they cut an onion. And then the rest of the night, you're, I can do that too. Uh, my focus always with every class is it's your class. It's not my class. This is your dinner party. This is yours. I will make it be whatever you want it to be. Uh, as far as the split, I'd say these days, I'm seeing more of like a 70-30, I'd say. 70% want to sit back, have a glass of wine, don't even want to get their hands dirty. They just want to have a great entertaining moment where I'm teaching, I'm telling jokes, they're learning, they're asking questions, we're having fun, and then they get a meal made by a chef. And then there's about 30%, they really want to get in there. They want to you know, bring extra cutting boards, bring extra knives. We want to really get our hands dirty. I mean, there are some who are gung-ho. They want me to almost touch nothing. They just want me to tell them what to do and just give little quick mm -hmm. demos so they can really feel like they've gotten their hands dirty on it. And that's cool. And like I said, it's whatever you want it to be. I have no uh, no ego that tells me, oh, my God, I better get in here and help you out because it won't turn out right. It's your party. So how long does one of your uh, classes usually take? Usually I try to hold the cooking part of the class to about three hours. I found that non-professional chefs – uh, tend to get a little tired of cooking after about three hours or, or listening to cooking. You know, because yeah. you know, I mean, if you sit down and watch the Food Network, three hours is, you know, that's about, you know, it's time to see something else. Uh, you know, right. That's enough. Um, so I try to hold that part. Now, yeah, there's, you know, I come in, I got set up a little bit ahead of time. And then there's the eating and the talking and the cleaning and all that stuff. So there's a lot of fun. I tell people, like, try to book about five hours total time of, from when I show up to when I leave. Uh, and sometimes it goes longer than that if we're having a good time. But the, the class part, I try to keep around three hours if I can get away with that, you know, so that holds their interest, you know, they get food in a reasonable amount of time and so forth. Uh, I, I, when I first started out my bread classes, some of them were going, creeping into five hours of class time. It was just too much. Uh, and they, I could see, I could see people's faces glazing over. 
it was one of my most popular classes when I started out. And back to the search engine planning, I had positioned myself inadvertently as like the number one bread class in the DC area. Everyone who wanted to learn bread was calling me. And I was like, and at first I didn't realize what I'd done. And so I was like, what the, I mean, do this many people want to learn how to make bread? It's like, no, they were discovering me for bread first. So everyone came to me first about bread. So, okay, fine. So I was teaching tons and tons of bread. So I got my bread class narrowed down, you know, I got it whittled down, but I knew that I had to do a lot of, now through the magic of television, here's your risen loaf that you, know, so you make the dough. We'll just stick that to the side. Now here's one I did a few hours before and it's fully risen. We can now carry on. Uh, and I'm like, and the good news is you got more bread tomorrow. If you put that in the fridge and let it slow ferment overnight, no worries. You'll, you'll do that tomorrow. So you get a lot of bread out of the class. Um, but that, that got the pacing going. Like, let's get this, let's get this party moving because I mean, some sourdoughs take forever. Um, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it in a class. It wasn't coming out right. Do you do sourdough classes? Oh yeah. Oh, very much. Like people who want bread, one of the, I, I, I say we'll do three breads. We'll do two long and uh, one quick bread and we'll make sandwiches out of it. And we'll make food with it. The long bread, always, there's a sourdough. They yeah. want a sourdough, and then they want to learn baguettes, or they want to learn focaccia. They want to learn something else, but sourdough, always sourdough. And I think that's the challenge of saying you do cooking classes, because I, have in my marketing, has always said cooking classes or cooking lessons, and that's what people come to me for, and that's not what I want to do. And I've really had to change my wording to experiential interactive dining, where uh-huh. it, I want it to be in the context of a served meal like a multi-course but when people think of cooking lessons they say do you do sushi do you do bread like i don't do any of that Mm. you know it's more like i'm gonna teach you how to make this soup this salad this entree maybe this dessert but not like a super narrow focused bread or pasta or something like that like i'll do a pasta as one course of a multi-course meal but when people hear cooking classes or cooking lessons they always seem to focus on baking, which is yeah. also not my wheelhouse. Like yeah. I do okay, but I'm not going to start charging people money to learn how to bake bread. What I did was I, I, I put uh, the classes in two forms. And there was, I saw two sort of trends in the classes. Either it was focused on a dish, so sushi, uh, pasta, cooking with tomatoes, uh, cooking with mushrooms, you know, sort of that kind of a focused element, bread, you know, that kind of thing. Or they wanted to learn a region. The cooking of Tuscany, the the cooking of Morocco, the you know uh, Turkish cuisine, and so I created my classes and I put like fifty or so on my site, focused around the those different elements. And so I said, so here's ingredient based classes, and here's Italian classes, and here's French classes, here's other countries, and you know that kind of thing. It spreads it around so you can mix and match what you want. And then I find some people who go on and they're like. Yeah, I'd like to learn this Ethiopian dish. I want to know that Indian dish. I want to learn how to make fresh pasta. And uh, for dessert, let's do that. Uh, let's do that one that you had in Portugal. Uh, that those egg custards, the pastel de nata from uh, from Portugal. And I'm like, fine. You know, it's your class. And would I ever serve that? Never. But it's a. But that's what they really. They they they're world travelers, and they've just picked up these different dishes from around the world. And fine, I'm open to anything. And what I love about that for me is one, I'm giving them a night that I know they'll be happy with. But more importantly, it's variety. The part of restaurant work that most got to me was the repetition. You know, when you have a menu, even if you change your menu quarterly in a restaurant, you know, you walk in in the morning and the nighttime guys have checked off the prep list for you. And it's like, I, I knew of the 18 things they left me, I knew what a dozen of them would be every time. So I'd get out, I'd start making the bechamel and I'd start, you know, finishing off the stock. And I, I you know, been here. And it gets a little tedious for me because I love variety. I love, you know, mixing and matching and being on my toes and doing something new. And now with this class, I get to make bread on Wednesday. And then I go to someone's house and we do Thai. And then I'm doing Indian. And then I'm doing a Valentine's Day cooking with aphrodisiacs kind of thing. Uh, You know, it's crazy wild, different stuff every night. And every night I'm in a different kitchen with a different group of people. I mean, nothing stays the same. And that motivates me. That drives me. Because it's exciting to me to always have something new. So I'd love to find out some more info about like how your business works behind the sure. scenes, because I think that's one of the things that provides so much value for our listeners. Like, do okay. you have a commercial kitchen? Do you rent any space, or is it all in customers' homes? And- yeah, my my business is in customers' homes. Uh, it really is. My house uh, at home, I have my garage is dedicated to uh, storage of uh, stuff, and I own three refrigerators in my garage. That's three out of seven uh, refrigerators. When people ask me, like, so you must have like a really big fridge. I'm like, I have seven fridges. And they're like, 
what? <laughs> like, yeah, I have a wine fridge that I also do my fermented products in because the temperature is perfect for that. And they just, that it doesn't register in their mind that I have seven things. But I do rent kitchen space as well. I definitely did when I was doing personal chefing. You have to have rented kitchen space for that. And I was renting kitchen space through that time. But I also have rented kitchen space right now because I have another business that I'm just launching, which is we're putting together spice packs for Instant Pots. Uh, it's Ani Spices is the name of it, A-N-I Spices. We're not selling just yet. We have to get our final approval of the labeling on there. You know, you got to really get all the wording very exact and positioning and stuff. So we're not selling it, but please check out the website at anispices.com if you can. Uh, and what the concept behind that is, is we mix, we mix spices together. I've written all the recipes and it's really all your spices, fresh, beautiful spices. You dump them, you go, you follow the recipe, just throw in the other things and your pressure cooker puts out a fantastic meal in no time. For that, I need professional kitchen space for mixing the spices, packaging, and so forth. So I do rent space for that. That being said, now that I have kitchen space, should I have a large party need, I have a kitchen to go to, just like I did when I was personal chefing. So I do like to keep a rented kitchen space in my back pocket uh, for whenever I need it. And I do need it for the uh, spices. And if I have like a big wedding or something that someone talked me into doing, uh, I have that ability as well to just jump into the kitchen, call some friends, and boom, we can bang that out. So big weddings, what number people do you like to do? What's kind of your max? What's your average? I don't like doing big gigs. I don't. I really don't like doing the large gigs. Uh, I do one or two a year because either it's a client that I've been cooking for a long time and like, oh, my daughter's getting married. And I'm sure. Okay, that's fine. Um, But I probably do. The biggest wedding I've ever done was 150. Um, And I had I'd hired another chef to help me. We were doing it outside and I'd rented a convection oven for outside they had electricity uh, i rented a deep fryer and all that and i had three servers coming and none of my servers showed up not one <laughs> not one and so i took the other sh- i took the other chef i was like you go to the bar and you man the bar and i will run the entire kitchen and fill the buffet line myself and i ran that whole thing by myself nightmare uh, oh yeah brutal but being in restaurants taught me how to handle that kind of thing if i hadn't done restaurants i would i would have collapsed he ran the bar all night and he was good enough at that I ran the entire kitchen uh, and so forth, but it was also midway through it. I mean, people were like, Hey, the food's really great. I'm like, thank you so much. I'm so glad you like it. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is why I don't do 150 person gigs. <laughs> I, I would much rather my average party. Like I said, I, I price on four people. My average gig is four to 10 people in the homes. And I love that. It's personal. It's uh, it's, I get to know the people. We have a good time together. That's what I want to do. The big stuff. I'm glad there are chefs that are out there that do the big stuff. And I'm happy to refer to them. For these large weddings, because I get requests for 200 person weddings left and right. I'm like, call my friends. I, I don't want to do it. I don't put it, want it. Put it into the Chefs Without Restaurants Network. Exactly. That's we'll, exactly we'll, what I'll do. I mean, that's really what. Exactly. Because I'm the same as you. I say I do two to 20. And people all the time, especially former customers, will say, oh, my niece is getting married. Yeah. Would you cater all her wedding? Time. Like, that's so far from what I do. And instead of turning it away and just saying, sorry, you're on your right. own, I have tons of friends who do that. Exactly. So why not throw that catering gig to someone in my network? And vice versa, I'm getting jobs all the time from big caterers who don't do small parties. I do dinners for as little as two. Right. I think that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. You know, So these big it catering is. companies who have great SEO and people are finding them, I'm capitalizing on that a little bit because I will do those two and four person parties. So. Exactly. Kind of putting everything back into our network and sharing with our peers. That's right. I have a network of uh, chef instructors in the area. And like one thing I don't do, for example, I do not do cake decorating. I get requests. I will not decorate cakes. I cannot stand that job. But I've got someone who does cake decorating. I've got another friend who's a specialist with kids. I'm not to say I don't like kids. i got a kid of my own. But I don't get as much joy out of teaching kids cooking classes but she was a teacher for 30 years. She loves kids. So, and now she, now she teaches great. She can have the kids classes, but then they throw things to me. Exactly. We all just bounce off each other, finding the classes that are right for the right group. Uh, and we share exactly. It's, it's a great, uh, it's a great network to have, to be able to share uh, the gigs so that everyone gets exactly what they want. So what's your biggest challenge? Would you say in this business? My biggest challenge is that there's only one of me. And I, you know, there's some weekends where it is just nonstop. Everybody wants me to come over and do things. And I can't, I can't replicate myself to do another gig. If you're like, Oh, why don't you hire, you know, another person and they'll take the gigs. I'm like, well, they're not me. And I'm not sure if they're going to give the experience that I would give. And I, I feel, you know, very protective of the name and the style of business and what it is that I offer. 
Um, so I would love to be able to franchise, as it were, uh, to open myself up to these because it's you know people want Saturdays. Everyone wants a Saturday, right. and and I don't work Sundays. Um, Sunday's family day. I I will not work Sundays. Again, if you're a really good client, you have a very special brunch. Okay, fine. One, one, I work maybe two Sundays a year, but I don't work Sundays. So what am I supposed to do? My my Saturdays right now are booked through May, which is great. I'm happy to be busy. I'm happy. I'm popular. But at the same time, I have to turn away a lot of business because I'm booked. You're, you know, these people planned ahead and they got me. And I have to say no to so many people in that respect. And I try to push them to Fridays and, and it works sometimes and those fill up. But, you know, I would love to be able to make everyone happy uh, if I, if could, there could just be two of me. Uh, that would really be fantastic. I think the experience is the hardest part because I get that question all the time is people say, how do you grow? How do you scale? And I realize that the way I do my dinners, I think I'm personable and as much an entertainer, if not more so than a chef. And a lot of people want to get out of restaurants and go do this. And they don't realize you're on show the whole night for hours. And you need to be able to roll with those punches, not just the, I forgot this, but mm-hmm. there's, I do dinners in people's homes and they have their kids running around or their dog is at your feet (laughs) or they're having conversations that make you uncomfortable, you know, just like all this stuff where it's not like you're just behind a door of a professional kitchen and you don't see the customer. Like you're in their home, you have to make them feel comfortable and you have to be an entertainer. And I think that is the hardest thing is I can hire someone to go out and cook my menu but how are they going to be in that right. environment? And I'm super protective. I started my business 10 years ago and I feel like perfect little bites is a thing. And I don't know how I could hire, you know, I love Andrew, but I don't know that I'm ready to send Andrew out right. under my business name to do the dinner and that he's going to get the same experience that I am. He might be able to do the menu. Right. I would send people out to a catering gig and I have, I've had catering, you know, basically straight up catering gigs. And I have one of my other guys who I've worked with in personal chefing and I'd have just serve the food. Uh, gets all ready to go and you know how to cook. So I know you know how to do that, but he didn't have to be personable. That's fine. Catering, it's easy to farm out. But the experience of teaching, the experience yeah. of the interaction, the experience of creating and uh, making an event, yeah, I, I don't know anyone else who would do it the way I do it. And I want them people to enjoy because I feel like I'm bringing fun, a fun night to people. I, 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 I wrestled with this for a while. Am I bringing, is my job what I service? Am I servicing good food? Well, sure, but you can get good food in a restaurant. Am I servicing learning? Well, sure, but you can also learn by going on the internet and watching uh, TV shows and stuff. You can learn other places. But I'm providing a fun experience in your home that has learning, that has good food, and you and your friends get exactly what they want. And it's funny, and it's mine, and I bring that fun evening. And no one else does it the way I do it. And that's what I can't replicate. I can't replicate my real thing that I'm marketing, which is a great evening, a total package. See what I'm saying? So I can farm out food, but I can't farm out the fun because uh, that's what I try to bring. I try to make sure everyone has a great time. So I usually ask this of all of our guests at the end of our first uh, section, and it's sort of multidimensional, uh, but what are you currently cooking? And that could be like, what's new for your business? What are you actually currently cooking at home or... As a, as a father of a six-year-old daughter, I do cook a lot of simple things right yeah. now because, I mean, she's... She's wonderful, but she does have the palate of a six-year-old, so I'm not uh, I'm not doing the avant-garde stuff at home. What I'm cooking most right now, uh, working with as far as expanding the business, is not only, of course, the pressure cooker, instant pot type recipes for the spice business, but also cocktails. I am expanding my cocktail education, uh, and I've come up with a series of about 10 classes now of cocktails from either different regions or uh, different periods in history or focused on different uh, main spirits. And then the food pairings that go with those cocktails as well. So, for example, on Valentine's this year, I am doing an evolution of the martini class. So we're going to look at the martini through history, uh, you know, different iterations of it, where it first started, you know, the uh, the first versions thereof, what it looked like pre-prohibition, uh, how it got totally destroyed after prohibition, uh, and then its renaissance, and finally finishing with my personal martini, just to see what people think about that. That's where, where I'm at with the drink right now. But then along the way, we pair with foods uh, that I think really pair with those specific types of martinis really well through the course of the night. And that's what I've mostly been focusing on is uh, improving my cocktail abilities, learning about cocktail history and culture, and uh, of course, then coming up with the recipes that uh, actually taste good with these things. I got into cocktails because I really wanted to learn tiki. 
believe it or not. <laughs> I wanted to learn tiki drinks. I've always been fascinated by tiki. It always seemed like it, tiki just made no sense. Like, how did this even happen? Once I started learning the history of cocktails in America, uh, once I started learning the different influences and what was happening in the world at the time, uh, the rise of tiki after World War II made a ton of sense. And yeah. the, to be able to pull all the patterns and all the weaving together and see what the evolutionary tree of cocktails were that led to tiki and then how the death of tiki led to the cocktail, the, the cocktail dark ages that came right after it. It all is, it's just a fascinating history. It's really interesting. And I love teaching all about that in classes. And then the tiki class, I mean, the food you can do with tiki cocktails because they're so big and so robust, you can pair almost anything with them. You know, martinis are a little fussier, but a tiki drink, oh man, you can go almost anywhere with that. So the food is phenomenal in that oh, yeah. class as well. Uh, it's, I love it. Uh, but it took me a while to even get there. I actually had, I feel like I had to learn almost a hundred different cocktails before I could say, okay, now I'll start tiki. Uh, because I just didn't feel like it was time yet. I wanted to make sure I was doing it right and learning the proper steps. And the amount of spirits, you see the recipes and some of them have like, you know, four kinds of rum in one drink. It's not like making a Manhattan and mixing two things. Yeah. Oh my God. The, I, I, the first tiki class I ever did, I was pouring everyone full cocktails. And by the end of the, by the fourth cocktail, I mean, half the, half the class had dropped out. <laughs> they couldn't even, I was like, okay, let's uh, time to scale back. You know, and these are the things you'll learn uh, as you go in a house. I was like, I was making good cocktails, but I was like, Ooh boy, I, uh, <laughs> Everyone's plowed. I got to yeah, because there's so much more booze in them. And, and the sugar that's in them helps to elevate that. You know, really gets that absorption going. So, I mean, these people were, as they were wiped out. I mean, and the last drink was supposed to be a zombie. I'm like, no, no, no. Well, I'll make one and we'll just taste it. How about that? <laughs> I'm also a cocktail guy. Yeah, I was going to say. Do you do, co- do, you do cocktails? In, uh, so, I don't, I will make, I don't want to get into right now buying, bringing, I don't even know gray area of like legally what you can Mm -hmm. do. And I I don't think a lot of people even have the answers to that. I will create a cocktail and tell you what to get. I'll mix while I'm there. But people don't want just a cocktail. They want a dinner. And it's really hard going by myself and to make cocktails, even the stirring and shaking and making a cocktail for 10 people and then getting my butt in the kitchen and making a seven course dinner gets really hard. I'm actually on a podcast that was released today. Those of you listening, you'll have to go search it. But uh, it's with Jason Luttrell, who used to be at Death & Company in New York City and is in the Death & Co. book, which if you don't know Death & Co., in my opinion, one of the best bars, obviously, in the country. Were they the Uh, ones? They're famous for a cocktail. Uh, I don't know which cocktail. I mean, everyone – I mean, Don Lee, I think, worked there. And did he do like the Benton's Old Fashioned maybe while he was there? Um, Joaquin Simo was there, like just the best bartenders. And I connected with Jason a while ago, but he now has a podcast. He does uh, bar consulting um, and also helping people build their businesses and brands. But we had a great discussion about, you know, what I do and the in-home chef kind of thing, because he is also working with, you know, people like you kind of bartenders doing this in-home bar experience and stuff. And we just kind of talked about the experiential uh, events in people's homes and kind of the shift to that kind of thing. And with all these meal deliveries and in-home things, is there a potential shift where people are going to stop going to restaurants if they can get a restaurant quality meal and also cocktail in their home? I don't see the uh, restaurant industry going anywhere. I mean, the restaurant industry, I think, is still strong in the respect that people, some people just don't want to have strangers in their house and that kind of thing. But definitely there is, definitely with the millennial generation, I see it more and more of, I don't just want to have a meal, I want to have an experience in addition to the meal. And an in-home cooking class with your friends is exactly what they're looking for. And it's great. Uh, It's a wonderful thing that people want this. And there's enough room for a lot of us to be doing this. You know, it's not not a one-horse town. Like, I I have to fight every other chef in the D.C. area because there's only so many classes to go around. Like I said, there's only one of me, and I'm farming classes out uh, to my friends and vice versa. Uh, I love that so many people are into this concept and want to do this that there's enough for everybody. Uh, it's a, and it's, it's such a fun job and it's such a fun time. I, I really love at the end of the night when everyone's like, I didn't even know what to expect. You know, I thought you'd come over and we'd have some fun, but this is so much better than what I was even imagining. And that's the best compliment to me that they, I exceeded their imagined version of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause we just had a great time together. Yeah. Like I said, I'm selling fun. Speaking <laughs> of fun things, we uh, have a game that we play at the end of every episode. All right. On the fly. Okay. You said something like you wanted like a one word answer to these, or do you want? Because yeah, I, mean, you you be, I mean, yeah, if, you, if you can't tell, one, I don't do one word well. And one of them is definitely not a one word answer. What's your favorite tool in the kitchen? Fish turner. Well, what's your favorite food to eat? 
Um, cuisine, Thai, single food, risotto. If you had all the monies, what's the first position you would hire? I would definitely clone myself if I had all the monies. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all the monies. You said because that's, that's the whole concept. Yeah, I want I want more of me so I can. If I have all the monies, I could probably afford that. <laughs> but actually, okay, as a you real answer, took that in a totally new place that nobody has ever done. Uh, or either that or uh, accountant. Who's your favorite chef? The chef I cook most like uh, is Jamie Oliver. Is the one I cook most like mm-hmm. uh, to give someone that people know. Because uh, you know, my grandmother, you, know, you never had it. That's, which is she's great. Uh, she she was great. Yeah. It, as far as I, I read cookbooks, like people read novels, right? I sit down, I read different cookbooks, and I when I'm reading cookbook the first time, I'll be like, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. But I mean, when I try this recipe, I might do this. I might do that. When I read a Jamie Oliver cookbook, for some weird reason, I'm always like, yes, that is exactly how I would approach that dish. He and I, for some reason, we just cook the same so i really like the guy because you know he just he and i we mesh uh, as far as yeah, conceptually yeah. and he does good cocktails in some of his books too by the way uh which you might not a lot of people give him credit for that he's actually a pretty good cocktail chef too art or science science what's one thing that you do differently from everybody else i cook risotto differently from everybody else okay risotto is not a thing that you stand over it and stir it all the time it is not something you add ladle full at a time of liquid That's not right. That's exactly what everyone thinks. The thing that you do is you pour water to cover the rice, let it cook down, stir it in, and then walk away. Go do something else. Come back, water it in, the liquid, excuse me, the broth, water mixture, liquid to cover the rice, stir it in, walk away. Third time, if you've measured the rice and the uh, water properly, it'll be three additions of liquid, and the third time that it's cooked down, your risotto's done. If you over-stir your risotto, it's gummy. You've teased off way too much of that starch off the rice, and you get this gummy risotto. You want a risotto that's got a nice al dente bite to it, and by stirring it way less, you get, one, you get a better risotto, and two, you don't have to stand over the pot. I Everyone's always like, I want to make risotto for company, but I don't want to stand over the pot. I'm like, if you're standing over the pot, you're doing it wrong anyway. I free people up to teach them that you can make risotto for company because you stand over the pot three times. And it's not even long when you do that. It can go with anything else. Can I give you a technique to try? Do you sure. know Do you know Ideas in Food? It's a website oh, and so yeah. much more. And that's a whole other thing. They do three-minute risotto. They soak their risotto in room temperature water <laughs> for, I think, 90 minutes. And they put baking soda in, oh. like the same way you would do ramen. Mm-hmm. And that pre-gelatinizes the starch in the rice and breaks it down a little. Okay. And then I think the ratio is like four to one boiling. So, like, take your stock. Like, you have, like, one cup of prehydrated soaked risotto, four cups of, let's say, chicken broth, bring it to a boil, dump it in, three minutes, it's done, uh-huh. shut off the heat, little cream, little butter, parm, however you finish. That, does it drink mm-hmm. all that liquid? Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, you should check out, go, go to their website, Ideas and Food, uh, and just Google on their three-minute risotto. You might find there's, they have a six-minute, they started getting, it was like seven-minute risotto, six-minute risotto, and then I think it's like three-minute risotto. So check out the Ideas and Food, like three-minute risotto recipe. I got seven-minute ads. Yes. No, it's really cool, but you can also do the same thing with pasta, like um, that you're, you're, you can just soak like spaghetti in water. I've, I've done that. And then it cooks so much faster. I've done that. The only time I've come up with something that I liked on that pre-soaked spaghetti was when you pre-soak it in red wine mm-hmm. to make the uh, pasta umbriaco, mm-hmm. the drunken pasta, and then you slowly cook it in the soaking wine and so forth. That came out okay. <laughs> so, But I will try this risotto technique because yeah. I like I like trying new, interesting, fun techniques like that. But I, uh, I also sometimes have that moment of like, well, how's it compare? Like, and so I do the side-by-sides. I do a lot of blind tastings. And my wife is an absolute risotto fiend, so I will do the blind tasting. Definitely check see that one out. It, see if it stands up to snuff. How's that for one word? Do we, do we go over? <laughs> What's your favorite digital tool? I'm, of course, fixated on my smartphone because I mean, it's how I do a lot of my That's business. That's a digital tool. But I, you know, I, I was trying to think, is there anything cooler of an answer than that? But I guess my phone is the, uh, it's how I run a lot of my business. So I, It's a popular answer. Yes. I, I don't, I, I'm trying to think like, you know, I can, I can use a non-digital scale, for example, right? But I can't use a non-digital phone. I keep my business alive at these, in this day and age. I, I need it. It's the lifeblood of the business. Can you recommend a book? Well, besides mine, uh, I would definitely say that I tell people get uh, Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazan is a great place to start your Italian cooking education. She did. She's not as well known as Julia Child, but what Mastering the uh, Art of French Cooking, Volume 1, 
was to French cooking in the U.S. Uh, Marcella Hazan was to Italian cooking. She brought Italian cooking to the U.S., uh, and that was the book where it all began. Uh, I highly, highly recommend that book. I, it's cool. fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. Cool. And also uh, The Flavor of the Bible by um, Andrew Dornenberg and Karen Page. I think you're like the fifth person. To I say that one? I, yeah. It's a I, I love them. I met them back in 94, 95, I guess, when uh, Becoming a Chef came out. And I've no, been I, like a rabid fan of them. But I think, once again, you're like the fifth person. Yeah, Culinary Artistry was yeah. that first one, which was, I read that cover to cover like five times. It had that section in the middle about flavor. That was actually my favorite book. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that book. I thought it was just amazing. And then they came out with a whole book on the best part of the section. Of and then one. the Vegetarian yeah. Flavor Bible they put out. After. Yep. Oh, and they also do what to drink with what you eat and the food lovers guide to want. I mean, their books are phenomenal. Underrated book that people don't talk about is they have one um, that was recipes and it's not the chef's night out one, but it was they interviewed chefs and they put it was like a cookbook. And my wife and I have cooked almost everything out of that book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That one. No, I, I don't know which one that is, but I, I love most of their stuff. Maybe um, it is but, chef's um, night out or something. Maybe like that is chef's night out. What's the other Oh, I have a book called uh, Beyond the Red Sauce. Uh, it's classic Italian cooking with no tomatoes. I just wanted to have the experience of writing a book, and the angle that I came up with was I had done a dinner party for someone. I did a full Italian meal, like seven courses, and I suddenly realized I hadn't bought any tomatoes for the entire dinner. And it sort of just opened up that mindset of, wait a minute, you know, tomatoes aren't even native to Italy. Um you know, there's a real trend of real attack, but you you go to any place and like, well, the Italian version is we just slap some marinara on it. And I'm like, I want people to think about all the great Italian dishes that are out there that don't have tomatoes. And I wrote it a few years ago and I feel like I need to update it, but it's still, it's a lot of fun. And I, I still enjoy cooking a lot of recipes out of it. And it has a very nice risotto chapter. Uh, so it's very well stocked. We'll link that one too. What, uh, what's your favorite culinary resource? I like foodsubs.com. All too often when I am selling a cooking class, you know, I've sold them on a concept, the, the menu, and that may be months in advance. Then I go to the store and I find that one ingredient that I need mm-hmm. is just, I go to two or three sources and it's just not there. Um, the, the Cook's Thesaurus or foodsubs.com is a great way to like, just sometimes I'm like, what is a good substitute for this one cheese? I've diet? never heard of that. And yeah. that is amazing, amazing. because yeah. I, I'm 100% there. Like yeah. I'm at the store trying to buy fresh stuff on Saturday morning before a gig. And I've told them we're having the salad with kohlrabi and no one's right. got kohlrabi. No one's got kohlrabi. And what yeah. am I going to do? Where the kohlrabi looks like, you know, garbage. Like death warm beverage. Yes. And you're like, okay, what can I put in place of kohlrabi? Well, you know, you know. You know that kohlrabi is a version of uh, the mustard you know, We know that broccoli and Brussels sprouts and all these things are related to it. But what kind of preparation am I doing? So there's some thinking on the fly and so forth. But the Food Subs website mm. with my smartphone, since I'm there in the store and I need it, is a great way to just – it might suggest some things that I hadn't been thinking about. Uh, it's I find it very useful for cheeses. Like if they don't have the exact kind of cheese you want – Sometimes trying to figure out, you know, I need a cheese that melts the same way as that one or has the same uh, flavor profile as that one. And that's really useful on the fly to make sure I'm getting something that's in the same ballpark. One of my last questions, how do you decompress? So at the end of a good night, finished up, uh, finished up a gig, dishes are washing. Uh, usually it's with an old fashioned and uh, I will turn on uh, usually Netflix or something like that and just watch about I'll have the best intentions of watching a half hour of something and usually about 10 minutes and I'm gone <laughs> because, because, you know, you're running at such high energy. you I feel like, um, your motor is revving in ways. I mean, you're cashing checks that your body is just, you know, not, not able to cover. And so it's all done. And you know, the eyes are off me. People aren't paying attention to me anymore, uh, which I you know feed off of. And it's like, as soon as it gets quiet, it's all it needs. I just need to sit somewhere quiet and just, yeah. I'm gone. And that's what I really need. I just need people to stop paying attention to me and to feel like I don't have anything else to do. And then I just need something somewhere dark and quiet. And that's all we need. All right. What is the best meal you've ever had? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I should have been ready for this one. I'd say I once had one night in Portugal, went to this rustic, hole in the wall kind of place that it didn't even have a menu. You showed up, the guy was cooking and everyone in town said, yeah, go to this guy's restaurant. You show up and then he starts putting food in front of you. And I mean, I, he did not speak English. I did not speak Portuguese. So he starts putting down this thing. His son comes over and pours that thing. They start pouring wine. 
the, the food is phenomenal. I mean, everything's so well done. And the main course was this beautiful wild boar shoulder, uh, Papa Adele thing. Oh, phenomenal. He's coming around with pork. He pours more pork. He's coffee. It just, he just keeps throwing food at me all night long. Great meal. But the best part of the evening was at the end of the night, he comes up to me and he had like a receipt tape. Like, you know, you hit, you hit zzz, feed the receipt thing and he just wrote 30 and handed it to me <laughs> in hand. 30. I'm like, 30 euros, huh? <laughs> Here's 50, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic wow. evening. But that was the only thing he ever communicated to me all night was 30 on the back of a piece of register tape. And, and I mean, to have food that good all night, just be so welcomed without speaking a word, never knowing what was coming next. And just, I just, I'll always remember that piece of paper that just said 30 on it. And that's, that was just a fantastic evening. I, I, I enjoyed everything about that, even though I never spoke with anyone practically all night. <laughs> um, okay. My last question happened with this one. Okay. What do you want to be remembered for? I would love to be remembered as a fun instructor. I would love people to know that this was a guy who loved teaching cooking and was good at it. You know, he, he always made me come away more confident. Like I had him over and I felt like I could tackle any of the things that he taught me. And I, I became a better chef for it. And I had more fun on my own, like not when I was there, but that allowed me to take it to the point where I could have more fun with other people. Uh, you know, I didn't have to be afraid of cooking. I didn't have to be afraid of anything. I could just sit back now and have fun with my friends with a great home cooked meal because I delivered that confidence and ability to give that to them. Awesome. Sounds like you're already doing that. Like to think so. Thank you very much. It's very kind yeah. of you. And thank you for coming out here. We appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I had a great time. That's yeah. Truly anytime. Uh, tell everybody how they can reach out to you. Oh, contact yeah. Information and absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So if you want to uh, reach out to me, you want to book a cooking class, which I hope you do if you can hear me, uh, my website is finarelli.com. It's spelled just like my last name. So it's F as in Frank, I-N-A-R-E-L-L-I.com. Uh, and, of course, also check out Ani Spices uh, if uh, pressure cooking and that kind of thing is interesting to you, uh, A-N-I-Spices.com. And, uh, yeah, the best way to get in touch with me by far is to send an email because I'm in kitchens. I'm in grocery stores. I am doing podcasts. You know, I'm, I'm not, if you call me, my phone's off right now. I'm not going to answer the phone. I, I always tell people I will get back to with any, ask me any question. I'll answer it, but I'm not the Turkey hotline. Okay. You can't call me up and be like, okay, the Turkey's in the oven. What do I do? Hey, I'm busy, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help yeah, you, yeah. but I will answer any questions. So email, 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 email me at chef at finarelli.com. If you, even if you just want to have a question about cooking, I'll answer. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me to book a class or any sort of event. Awesome. Thank you again. And all of you know how to reach out to us, I think, by now, unless you're a first-time listener. Chefs.restaurants at gmail.com. Anything you, you have a question or a comment, hit us up. Follow, like, subscribe, leave a review. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.